Chapter 19 relates the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And here at the beginning of chapter 20, we read, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. You remember that where Abraham was situated was up on a plateau above the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah were located. We know that it was within eyesight of the valley because Abraham went out in chapter 19 and verse 27 early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. We don't know why Abraham moved on from his place up near the Oak of Memory, up on this plateau. Perhaps he didn't like the sight or the smell of the valley. Perhaps the smell of sulfur was very strong in that area after God's judgment and Abraham wanted to move on. Perhaps it was simply time to move on to better pastures for his flock. We don't know. But in any case, Abraham moves on here in this narrative. You could almost imagine him coming up to this city or this village or town or whatever it was, Gerar, where Abimelech reigns. And having a conversation, something like this with his wife. Now you remember when God caused me to wander all those many years ago from my homeland. You remember that we agreed that every place that we go to, you will say, you are my sister. You remember? And so they come into Gerar. And sure enough, just like at the end of chapter 12, we've seen this before. Sarah says, I'm his sister. Abraham says, she's my sister. Back in Genesis chapter 12, we talked about the wickedness of that. Here in this narrative, it seems, well, not it seems, it's it's explicit that God did not allow Abimelech to be sexually intimate with Sarah. Back in chapter 12, we have no such reassurance. In fact, Pharaoh says, I took her to be my wife. So there's no actual hint that the marriage wasn't consummated back in Genesis chapter 12. So we talked about what a despicable act that was then. That Abraham, in the interest of self-preservation, was willing to sacrifice his wife's sexual integrity. And perhaps even, perhaps even expose her to unwanted sexual advances from Pharaoh. We don't know whether she was complicit in this and she was eager to do this, or if she was hesitant. But in any case, Abraham has this, what we see here is a pattern of basically letting his wife be taken as a, a wife of other men in order to preserve himself. What a despicable act. We've already dealt with that at length, so we're not going to kind of rehash that. But what we see here is it's a pattern. So we've already seen in Genesis 12, he does this thing. 
And then we read about God reaffirming His promises and dealing with Abraham so graciously. We read of Him repenting even of that sin. And then being the man of faith, going and rescuing his nephew Lot from these kings from the east who had made a raid in chapter 13. We read all, all of these things, or pardon me, chapter 14. We read all of these things and we think Abraham is a changed man. And then we get to Genesis chapter 20. And we read in verse 2, And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And it's kind of discouraging. Kind of lets the wind out of our sails as we're reading through the narrative. Like, oh no, not again. But that's what happens. Abimelech takes Sarah to be his wife. We should remember here, Sarah is 90 years old now. We're told in the scripture that she was a very beautiful woman. Commentators have this great difficulty of saying, well, how when she was 90 was she so appealing that the king would go and take her to be his wife? Well, I'll say a few things about that issue. One is, it's not 100% certain that the king was taking her to be his wife in this situation out of sexual desire. It could have been partly making a treaty, some kind of a uh, treaty with Abraham, some kind of an alliance with Abraham, who was himself a powerful man with many servants and lots of riches and so on and so forth. And so we obviously know throughout history, people have married for political alliances. Something like that might be going on. But I actually don't have a great difficulty here with thinking that she actually just still was a very beautiful woman. Because there's there's a couple things at play here. One is, our culture idolizes youth in a really unnatural way. You think of all the magazine covers and all the advertising on TV and on the internet. Everybody's airbrushed and artificial and so on and so forth. Like Our culture just can't handle people getting old. And they just have such a hard time with that. But, so our culture would tell us a woman can't be lovely after a certain age, whether, whatever age it may be. Our culture is going to tell us after a certain age, a woman can no longer be lovely in principle, which I think is a false premise that we should challenge. But the second thing is that It seems that there has been a process of the human body getting worse and worse and experiencing more and more of the effects of degeneration the further that we get from the fall of mankind into sin. Which is why you see immediately after the fall, people are still living living several hundred years. Even in this narrative, they're still living well past a hundred. And so, even if you want to grant that, okay, there's something attached to youth that's beautiful, it's quite conceivable that Sarah, as a 90-year-old woman, didn't look like what we would consider a 90-year-old woman would look like. But that's peripheral somewhat to our story. In any case, Abimelech takes 
Sarah to be his wife. But what we see is that God strikes Abimelech and his household with some kind of sexual dysfunction. In verses 17 and 18, we read this. God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now you might think here that this is just infertility. But what we see earlier in this chapter, in verse 6, God says, It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. And then if you go back to chapter se- or pardon me, verse 17, we see this. God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves. So something was actually wrong with Abimelech too. So it seems here that there was some kind of sexual dysfunction, which was part of this disease that God struck them with. And so God prevented... Abimelech from consummating this marriage with Sarah. Abimelech lays down to sleep and has a dream where God confronts him. Again, this is peripheral to the story, but just notice God's challenge here or God's confrontation here of Abimelech is predicated on this fact at the end of verse 3 she is a man's wife you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken for she is a man's wife which shows that even though polygamy happens in the pages of scripture God doesn't condone it and that the prohibition against adultery which would include all kinds of sexual deviation including polygamy is already active here even among Abimelech and the residents of Gerar so he confronts Abimelech and Abimelech doesn't shift out from under this saying oh it's not a big deal or something like this he acknowledges the truth of what God says But he says, essentially, I didn't know. In the innocence of my heart, I've done this. And God admits his claim. Which means that Abimelech is not lying. Abimelech is telling the truth. So Abimelech has done something right. Or pardon me, Abimelech, I should say, hasn't done something wrong in this situation. God says, it is I who have kept you from sinning against me at the end of verse 6. So Abimelech hasn't actually sinned against God in this situation here. All he's done is try to take someone as his wife, whom he had no way of knowing that she was not single. He wakes up in the morning and gathers all of his counsel together and tells them what happened. And the men were afraid. They took God seriously. They considered God's threats to be real. They considered God's arm to be powerful. And they wanted to make this right. So Abimelech calls Abraham to him. 
and in the eyes of all, as we see in verse 16, confronts Abraham. And he's, these are basically rhetorical questions. What have you done to us? And how, how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Here's the point he's making. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. But then he asks a real question. What did you see that you did this thing? Because Abraham replies, we know that it's not a rhetorical question. So in the eyes of all, Abimelech gives Abraham a chance to speak for himself. And Abraham says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. Verse 11. And they will kill me because of my wife. And besides, she is indeed my sister. The daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place of which we come, say of me, He is my brother. So basically what Abraham says is, Well, I, was, I didn't think you would be a good guy. And so I did this. And besides, it's my pattern and my habit to do this. And besides, it's kind of half true what I told you. So Abraham's response here is actually really lacking. He basically digs himself a deeper hole, actually. He doesn't really give much substance in his answer. He pretty much just said, well, I did it because that's what I always do. I kind of always tell half-truths everywhere I go. And so... Because I always do that, I did it here as well. And basically, I, I prejudged that you would not be a God-fearing man before I met you or knew anything about you. That's pretty much the substance of what Abraham says. Abimelech here responds by giving sheep and oxen, male and female servants to Abraham and returning Sarah, his wife, to him. And he says, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. The tables have turned here from back in Genesis 13 when Abraham is the big man and he's making this magnanimous offer to Lot, his nephew. Now Abimelech is being the big man and making this magnanimous offer to Abraham, who is this conniving and deceiving man of little faith here in this passage before us. And then he makes this cheeky remark to Sarah. Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. <laughs> it is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. Now, a thousand pieces of silver would be 166 years worth of labor for a laborer. So this is a, this is a big sum of money. So... What he's doing here is he's really clearing his name. And he's really clearing Abraham's name and Sarah's name. Saying nothing happened here. This was a misunderstanding. Abraham lied to us. He's admitted it in the eyes of everybody. Take this and make yourself at home and let's not have this problem again. This is basically what's going on here in this section. And then, as we've seen, God heals. Abraham prays for them and God heals them. Now here's the question. Can you see yourself in Abraham? Maybe you haven't done this exact same thing. But he has an action behind which is a thought 
And behind which thought is a paradigm, a whole way of thinking. His actions flow from his specific thoughts, and his specific thoughts flow from his general patterns of thinking. Abraham lies, saying she is my sister, because he has this thought, there is no fear of God in this place, and I think they will kill me because of my wife. His thought that there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife, therefore I should lie, comes from a paradigm, a way of thinking that is underneath or behind these specific thoughts. Something like this. No one else is looking out for me. Or perhaps even more sinister, something like this. My physical safety is above my wife's physical or sexual chastity. There are big things underneath the specific thoughts that Abraham has and based upon which he acts. So his lie doesn't come from nowhere. His lie comes from a specific thought, which is that the inhabitants of Gerar will kill me because of Sarah. And his lie, based on that, happens within a framework. Abraham's typical way of thinking, which is basically, let's stay on safe ground and say at least this, no one else is looking out for me. I have to look out for myself. I can say with confidence, Abraham was thinking something like that. Because it's just a small step beyond what is explicitly written here in Scripture to infer that. Abraham is afraid that the inhabitants of Gerar are going to kill him, so he takes matters into his own hands and tells a lie in order to protect himself. He certainly cannot believe, functionally, remember we talked about functional belief and functional unbelief earlier in the service. He cannot believe functionally that it's true what God said in Genesis 15 and verse 1. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. You see, because if Abraham's paradigm, his way of thinking was, God is my shield, then he wouldn't have had these thoughts, the inhabitants of Gerar are going to kill me, which led him to lie in order to protect himself. If God is my shield was his paradigm, then he would have had specific thoughts more like this. God will take care of me in this place and I should trust Him. And therefore, He wouldn't have lied. For us, don't we have actions that come from thoughts, that come from paradigms and whole ways of thinking? Deeply ingrained things. Remember, these things were deeply ingrained in Abraham. He said, when God caused me to wander... I said this to Sarah. That was over 25 years ago. So 25 years ago, Abraham settled it in his mind. I need to protect myself everywhere we wander by doing this. Lying, saying that my wife is really my sister. That's something that he settled a long time ago. That's, that's not just out of the blue. That's a deeply entrenched way of thinking for Abram. The only way to stay safe 
from the people who want to kill me is to lie. Don't we often have deeply entrenched things that are underneath our specific thoughts that then cause us to act in specific ways in specific circumstances? So let's say, let's say that you don't ever talk to people about problems that you have with them. You, you disattach from a situation rather than have a confrontational conversation. Let's say that you do that in a specific instance. You have a coworker and you, you're building up a good relationship with your coworker. You're starting to get to know her better over time. And then something happens between you and her. And instead of talking to her about it, you just distance yourself from her. The specific thought is, if I talk to her about it, it's probably just gonna get even worse. So I'm not going to talk to her about it. So you do a specific thing in a specific situation, which is predicated on a specific thought. If I talk to her, it's gonna get worse, not better. But underneath that, if I talk to her, it's gonna get worse, not better, is a more deeply entrenched way of thinking. A paradigm, if you will. That would go something like this. Conflict is bad. You settled it in your mind a long time ago. Conflict is bad. Therefore, when a conflict comes up in this specific situation, you have this specific thought. I can't talk to her or it's going to get worse. Therefore, you act in a specific way, in a specific context. I'm going to pull back from this relationship rather than talking to her about this. Let's take another example. <laughs> you are in a relationship and it's getting a little more serious and then the subject of marriage comes up and you freeze. And you think, I can't marry her because I can't trust her. So you have this specific thought and you act in this specific way and you break up with her because you don't want to go there. But underneath this, I can't trust her, maybe this paradigm, this deeply entrenched way of thinking, I can't trust anyone. I can't let anyone get that close to me. You understand how there are things that we just settle in our minds that just become axiomatic for us, like they're not up for debate. Things like conflict is bad, or I can't trust anyone, or it's my life and no one else can tell me what to do, or the church is full of hypocrites and I can't go there or I'll be hurt, right? Or something like, Money will make me happy. Or I need sexual gratification. Or something like this. We have these deeply entrenched ways of thinking. That when situations come up, we have specific thoughts about specific situations which cause us to act specific ways in those specific situations. But behind those specific thoughts that we have are deeply entrenched ways of thinking. 
This is what's going on here in this situation for Abram, for Abraham. In this specific thing, he's afraid that the men of Gerar are going to kill him because of his wife. Why does he think that? Because of this deeply entrenched way of thinking. He's suspicious of everyone. He thinks that everyone is going to try to kill him because of his beautiful wife, Sarah. And so in every situation, he tends to react this way. He did it with Pharaoh in Egypt, and he did it here in Genesis chapter 20 in Gerar. Can you see that you do the same thing? That you have deeply entrenched ways of thinking that cause you to respond in specific situations in specifically sinful ways. Behind those specific actions, those specific words, those specific responses that are sinful are specific thoughts. But behind those specific thoughts are general ways of thinking, general paradigms, deeply held beliefs that you settled long ago in your mind and you don't revisit those things. These things lead to what many theologians have called besetting sins. Besetting sins. There are things that I might be prone to, sins that I might be prone to, that you might not be prone to. There are sins that you might be prone to that I'm not prone to. We may differ in terms of our proclivities toward one sin or the next, but we all have these things. We all will tend to react certain ways in certain circumstances because of these deeply held beliefs that are behind our specific thoughts and our specific actions. We have these ways of thinking that are in things settled a long time ago. Philip Eveson comments on the recurrence of this type of incident in Genesis. It happens three times. Twice with Abram, Abraham, and then once with his son Isaac. It repeats itself in the next generation, which we'll get there eventually. But some higher critics of Scripture have suggested that, therefore, that shows that Genesis is an anthology of writings collected from here and there and all put together in a mishmash and that there's not uh, Moses is not the author of Genesis as has been the consensus throughout history and they're basically these higher critics are saying they basically these three accounts are actually all the same incident and so really what you have here is just basically three versions of the same story which obviously then introduces error into the biblical text because it can't be both Abimelech and Pharaoh that this happened with, right? It had to have been one or the other. And it had to have been either Abraham or Isaac. And so higher critics will take this recurrence as an example of, well, obviously this couldn't have happened three times. So it would have had to have happened once. Therefore, there's some errors here and so on and so forth. Well, Philip Eveson makes this comment. Scholars often lose sight of reality. I like that, first of all. Sometimes scholars are way up in this ivory tower disconnected from real life and lose sight of reality and start talking about things in such an abstract way. Nobody down here knows what's going on. right? And they don't know what's going on down here either. Scholars often lose sight of reality 
and cannot believe that Abraham would make the same mistake twice, we all know from experience how easy it is to fall into the same sin. You ever done the same sin twice? Welcome to the club, Abraham. We should all be able to see ourselves in Abraham. We do specific things which are based on specific thoughts which have general ways of thinking behind them. Things that we settled long ago, we just don't revisit it. We just hold it as axiomatic. I can't trust anyone. I need sexual gratification. Money will make me happy. No one else is looking out for me. Conflict is bad. It's my life and no one else can tell me what to do. Things at that level cause us then to have specific thoughts in specific situations and act out in a sinful manner in specific ways, in specific situations. Let's look now at God's response. First to Abimelech. Grace to Abimelech. Grace to Abimelech. This is the God who struck Ananias and Sapphira dead, as we read earlier in the service. This is the God who struck Uzzah dead for steadying the ark, Nadab and Abihu for offering unauthorized fire. This is the God who struck Achan and his family dead when he took the forbidden objects. God protects Abimelech from sin here in this section of Scripture. At other points in Scripture, He's let people sin. He's permitted them to go the whole nine yards in their sin. The first thing He does is He stops Abimelech. The next thing He does is He confronts Abimelech. This should tell us at a principial level that grace is not coterminous with non-confrontation. Some people think that grace is being nice all the time. But God comes to Abimelech and says, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Well, that's not nice, but it is gracious. In other words, he didn't let Abimelech follow through with the sin and then strike him dead for sinning. But he stops him and he confronts him. And he warns him. He re- God, God says at the end of verse 6 that he kept Abimelech from sinning against him. So God acknowledges Abimelech's innocency but warns him. Return the man's wife. If you do not return her, know that you shall surely die and all who are yours. Sometimes grace looks like confrontation. We should, draw, we should note that as we make our way through. To Abraham, God shows grace as well. Great grace. Again, confrontation. God allows Abimelech to be the agent of confrontation here. But imagine how sheepish Abraham would have felt in front of Abimelech and all of Abimelech's servants when Abimelech confronts him and said, what have you done to us? 
How have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom such a great sin? You have done things to me that ought not to be done. And then, so reasonably, Abimelech offers Abraham a chance to respond. But if I was Abraham, I would probably not even want to respond. I would almost rather just be silent and just hang my head low and then like, leave when Abimelech is done talking. But Abimelech says, go ahead. Say your piece. What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham, well, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Well, first of all, who fears God more in this section of Scripture? Abimelech. Abimelech. It's Abraham who is treating God as if he is light and unimportant. Abraham acts as if there is no God watching over him. Abraham acts as if God is not his shield. Abimelech is confronted about this sin and God makes a threat to him. Abimelech responds with repentance immediately. And in fact, he calls his whole household together and tells them what happened. And we actually read explicitly at the end of verse 8, the men were very much afraid. Abraham is so wrong here. He's misjudged them. He's failed to trust God. He's acted in functional unbelief. And then he's done something despicable with his wife here in this situation. So Abraham fumbles through his response. Well, basically I acted with bias towards you and unjustifiable prejudice. I told you a lie because I'm in the pattern of telling lies. That is all. That's pretty much what Abraham says here in this situation. It's a terrible response. But what does God do? God has Abraham's back here in this situation. He doesn't condone Abraham's sin, but God doesn't strike Abraham dead. In fact, God comes to Abimelech and takes Abraham's side, as it were. Says, give his wife back. She's not your wife, she's his wife. Give her back. And then God causes the situation to fall out in such a way that Abraham is actually enriched through this situation. This is certainly undeserved benevolence, undeserved goodness. So grace. Again, we see that grace does not equal non-confrontation because God uses Abimelech to confront Abraham about his sin. So grace is not in and of itself, does not in and of itself exclude confrontation. But we also see here, as I've already alluded to, which we'll look at in more depth now. We also see unmerited favor poured out on Abraham here by God. In general, as I've just said, Abraham was completely wrong. In fact, Abimelech feared God in this instance more than Abraham did. But God was faithful in his relationship with Abraham to persevere in his relationship with Abraham in spite of Abraham's sin. Therefore, what we see is that God does not make us earn or merit grace in the first place, nor earn its retainment. In other words, Abraham can't lose the relationship with God that he has, which is predicated on grace. 
And he can't lose it because it's predicated on grace. If he could lose it based on his performance, it wouldn't be predicated on grace. It would be predicated on performance. So what we see here is that in spite of Abraham's unfaithfulness, God is faithful to Abraham in general in that he perseveres in relationship with him. But what we see here is that God is faithful also to other specific covenantal promises, including Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1, where he says, Fear not, Abraham, for I am your shield. Abraham should have let this specific covenantal promise, which I'm just taking as example, but he should have let this specific covenantal promise, I am your shield, along with all the other covenantal promises that God had made to him, inform these paradigms that he held these deeply entrenched ways of thinking and patterns of thinking that he settled a long time ago. He should have let these things change those things. In other words, when he left his homeland all those many years ago and said to Sarah, do this kindness to me everywhere we go. Say that you're my sister so that I can be safe. He was operating with this idea that no one else is protecting me but me. No one else is watching over me but me. I got to take care of myself because no one else is going to do it. What should have happened in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1 is when God said, I am your shield. What Abraham should have done is went back and revisited that deeply held belief. No one's looking over me but me. No one's taking care of me but myself. I must protect myself because no one else will do it. He should have went back and revisited that with the promise from Genesis 15.1 in his hand. No, God has said, I am your shield. Therefore, God will take care of me. I don't need to ultimately be worried about taking care of myself. Because God is taking care of me. He should have applied these covenantal promises to his ways of thinking and changed his deeply held ways of thinking based on God's covenantal promises to him. If he would have done that, then when he approached Gerar, he wouldn't have been thinking, I got to take care of myself which led him to think, i got to tell my usual lie so that I'll be saved. He would have approached Gerar thinking, the Lord will take care of me here, as He's taken care of me before, and as He's promised to continue to take care of me. Therefore, I do not have to lie anymore. I can tell the truth in this situation. That's what should have happened. But even though that didn't happen, God kept His promises. So what we see here is that God is working graciously with Abraham in spite of Abraham's undeservedness. God is working graciously and faithfully with Abraham in spite of Abraham's unfaithfulness. Remember that we saw ourselves in Abraham. 
earlier on. The same process of change that should have happened in Abraham's life should also happen in our life. What we need to do is we need to go take God's specific covenantal promises and apply them to our deeply held ways of thinking so that we go back and we reevaluate those things deep in our hearts and look at what's true and what's not true and apply God's specific covenantal promises to us to those deeply held beliefs. It's important as we do this that we recognize that not every promise made to anyone in Scripture is equally applicable to us. So take, for example, even the things made to Abraham. Even the promises made to Abraham are not necessarily all applicable to us. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. God never made that promise to me. Right? In, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God never made that promise to me. In fact, it would be blasphemous for me to claim that because that would be like the Messiah is coming from my line like He hasn't already come. So we don't go and just claim promises willy-nilly that were made to anyone at any point in history and just say, well, these are ours. Right? Like classic Jeremiah 29:13, For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Well, who was that promise made to? The exiles in Babylon. Not to us. So, it's still helpful to us in terms of it tells us something about who God is and the way that He deals with His people and so on and so forth. But we don't just claim that and go, well, I guess things are going to turn around soon for me. Right? We, don't just, we don't just claim this promise of descendants as numerous as the stars and so on and so forth. We don't just go grab promises from anywhere. But what we do is we go look at what has God promised His new covenant people. We take those things and then we try to apply them to our deeply held beliefs. So how about this? I am alone. Nobody really loves me. This is a deeply held belief that some of us operate with. And so as soon as somebody mistreats us, I knew they didn't really love me. Because nobody loves me. The deeply held belief that's underneath. Then we come to the new covenant and we read about God's love for us. We read that in love He predestined us for adoption as sons. Ephesians chapter 1. And now we have to go back and revisit that deeply held belief and say well at least God loves me we got to at least rework it there but if God loves me and I thought no one loved me I could be wrong about other people as well and the gospel starts to change and shape who we are at a deep level or I I can't change. Deeply held belief. I just can't change. I am who I am and I can never change. I've tried. I can't do it. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 8, we read 
that those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And so we would take that and apply it to this deeply held belief, I can't change. And go, well, God has actually, if I'm a Christian, God has actually predestined me to be conformed to the character of Christ. Which means He's going to change me. And as our, these deeply held beliefs change, then the specific thoughts that we have about specific circumstances, and then the way that we speak and the way that we act in these specific circumstances starts to change also. So we, we believe that God loves us. We believe that We're, even we start to take other promises that we're in a family now in the new covenant that we have brothers and sisters and then we take that into a specific situation where somebody hurts us or we get burned in the church or something like this and we go we don't revert back to oh well nobody loves me it's just the same here as everywhere else we go well maybe these people actually do love me even though they sinned against me. So I'm going to give it another try. You see how our specific responses change when we go take the gospel to these deeply held beliefs. When we go take the promises of the new covenant to these deeply held beliefs. We ought to live like the gospel is really true and that God's promises are really sure. As Abraham should have went into Gerar with paradigms of thinking that were shaped and formed by God's promises to him, which would have led him to have different thoughts and therefore different actions in Gerar. So we ought to go into the world and all the situations we face with paradigms that are shaped and formed by God's promises to us, which will then lead us to have specific thoughts about specific circumstances that will cause us to respond in a godly way. We need to live like the gospel is really true and God's promises are really sure. Live like we're sinners and everybody around us is sinners, but God's doing something about it. He sent His Son into the world to live the life that I should have lived, to die the death that I should have died, and He resurrected Him. And I'm bound to Christ in His death and in His resurrection in order that I too may walk in newness of life. Because Christ died and rose again, I in union with Him can live a new life now too. His Spirit is within me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. Nothing shall separate me from God's love that is mine in Christ Jesus. He has predestined me to be conformed to the image of His Son. All of these things. Live like these things are really true. Go back and look at these deeply held beliefs that you have. Things that shape and form the decisions that you tend to make and the patterns that you tend to interact with others in. And bring new covenant gospel promises 
to apply to these things. Live like these things are really true. Like all of the riches that the New Testament unfolds are ours in Christ, really are ours in Christ. Go and apply these things to those deeply held beliefs that cause you to act in certain patterns. This is the way that the gospel actually helps us overcome these besetting sins. We have to go underneath the specific behaviors. And it's not just about Abraham being like, oh, I'll try harder and do better next time not to lie about my wife, but actually going to what is underneath that, what is causing that, and bring God's promises to bear on that. So specifically for Abraham, it might have been something like bringing God's promise, I am your shield, to bear on this situation so that he didn't feel like he had to protect himself everywhere he went. Likewise, we need to go and do the same thing and bring God's new covenant promises to bear on the assumptions, the motivations, the deeply entrenched ways of thinking that are in our hearts, out of which come our specific thoughts and specific behaviors in specific circumstances. We ought to live like the gospel is really true and like God's promises are really sure.